When I was in about the seventh or eighth grade, all of my friends had really cool nicknames. I mean, like, really cool nicknames. Not like stupid nicknames, like really cool nicknames. I can't remember a single one of them. All week long, I've been trying to think, like, what, you know, was it Scooter? What was his nickname? I mean, like, I couldn't remember. Scooter now sounds dumb, but, man, when you were in seventh grade, if a guy, if everybody called a guy Scooter, like, that was something special. So I decided one day that I wanted a cool nickname. And so no one gave me a cool nickname. My name's Jeremy, which isn't cool. Like, it doesn't really do anything for you. Like, there, you can't, like, rhyme it with something cool. Like, you know, like, if your name's, like, Pete, like, you can come up with stuff that rhymes with Pete, and that could be a cool nickname. Like, nothing rhymes with Jeremy at all. And so I was trying to come up with rhyming words. I was trying to come up with words that meant something. I was trying to find, like, other translations and other languages of what my name meant and how I could use that into a really cool nickname. Like, I was studying it. I, pr- I should have gotten, like, graduate credit for this. I was really trying to come up with something that, you know, would mean something. And one day, I stumbled upon an incredible nickname for me. I mean, it was unbelievable. I'm about to tell you, and you're not ready for it. No, you're seriously not ready. I was watching television, and one of the characters said to another character, Hey, PJ. And I thought, that's a cool nickname. And so I thought, I wonder if people would call me PJ. Now, I don't know why they would call me PJ. My first name's not like Peter, Jeremy, Isaacs. It's just Jeremy. And as I said a couple weeks ago, it's not Jeremiah. It's just Jeremy. But I thought, PJ. I could get used to people calling me PJ. And so I just went to school and I told some of my friends, as you do in seventh grade, that a bunch of other people had decided they were going to start calling me PJ. No one had decided they were going to call me PJ. I had decided I wanted them to call me PJ. So I just walked up to some of my friends. I was like, hey, did you hear what they're calling me now? I mean, it's the craziest. I don't even know why they do it. They're just calling me PJ. And I'm like, all right, I'll go with it, whatever. And so for about a year, everybody just called me PJ, except this one guy. And it was really annoying. Because he would be the guy in the group of people when everybody's like, hey, PJ, did you see the game last night? And I'd be like, yeah, I saw it. And this other guy would be like, hey, Jeremy, did you? And I'd be like, no, 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 I'm sorry. Everybody's calling me PJ now. And he was like, I know, Jeremy, I'm sorry. And he just kept calling me Jeremy. And I wasn't really walking with the Lord as strong as I am right now, so I just wanted to cut that guy. (laughs) Like, I just wanted to punch him in the face because he wouldn't call me PJ. But... I don't know why anybody would call me PJ. Like Pastor Blake, our children and groups pastor here, he signs his emails PB. If you've ever gotten an email from him, it's probably been signed PB. You know why? Pastor Blake. But in seventh, peanut butter, right. Everybody's eating Uncrustables for lunch today. We've got them on the way out. I'm just kidding. PB is his, the way he signs his emails. I wasn't pastor anything in the seventh grade. I wasn't anything that started with a P. I was just Jeremy, but For some reason, I was able to convince everybody to call me PJ for about a year in 7th and 8th grade. And then I got to high school, and all those really cool middle school nicknames were stupid. And so nobody called anybody by Scooter or Sneaky Pete or PJ or anything else. Everybody just called you by your name until you did something to earn a nickname, right? And most of those nicknames you didn't want to have. 
And so I was fine being called Jeremy once I got to high school. But for about a year, I was able to convince everybody to call me PJ. Now, the reason that I tell you that is because I want you to start calling me PJ now. Because a bunch of other people... No, I'm just kidding. Please don't do that. We have been in a series for a couple of weeks where we've been looking at these people whose names were changed by God. We looked a couple weeks ago at a guy by the name of Abram who began to be called, according to the commands of God, Abraham. And really that name change was about what God had for him in the future. There was a covenant for him. There was a a plan for him and for his lineage to happen in the future. And so people started calling Abram, Abraham. And that was important because in that day, what your name, you know, what your name was, was something significant and it meant something. And so people knew that. And so they would call him a different name, which really declared that he was the father of the multitudes, even though he really wasn't the father of any. Um, Then the next week we talked about a guy named Jacob who was a deceiver. And he became, after wrestling with God, he became Israel. And Israel was connected again to a future that God had for him, to a promise. And there was 12 sons, and and all of these boys would be the 12 tribes of Israel. And so when you read about Israel in the Old Testament of Scripture, even in the New Testament when it's referenced, you're not talking about a country yet. You're talking about a person. And you're talking about his descendants. And we talked about how Jacob was about his past, but Israel was about his future. And we talked about how God sees us that way. Last week, Pastor Mark, who's our senior pastor for both Mount Perry and North locations, came and talked to us about a guy named Simon who became Peter. And he talked about how God had never given up on Simon, even when he continued to blow it. And his name was Peter, and God said, I'm going to, Jesus said, I'm going to build my church on you, this rock, Peter, and on the people who declare me to be God and declare me to be the Son of God. And so he talked about this guy named Simon who became Peter, and it was really incredible. God's never given up on you, and you don't need to give up on God. Well, today we're going to talk about a different kind of guy with a different kind of story that doesn't fit quite as neatly into this series. If you have your Bibles, flip with me to the book of Acts. The book of Acts is there just after the Gospels. So the Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And what the book of Acts is, is it is really, and I've said this before, but it is really the linchpin. It's really the hinge of the entire New Testament. Because the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are those stories of the life of Jesus. And then you have the book of Acts, which connects the stories of Jesus with the uh, kind of the creation of the New Testament church, which would eventually become the churches like we are today, following after the way of Jesus Christ. The book of Acts is really about those disciples that were left here on earth after Jesus left the earth, how they created the church. And where they went and how they did it and where they planted churches and where they evangelized and where they tried to create this new movement of the followers of Jesus Christ. And there's a lot of cool characters that we're introduced to, some of which we knew from the Gospels. There's guys like Peter. We read about some of the other disciples who did really cool things. And Luke is a writer here. He has written, obviously, the book of Luke. He also writes the book of Acts. And he is kind of laying out for us these stories that are taking place. And we are introduced very briefly in Acts chapter 7 to a guy who would later play a humongous role in the evolution of the early church. Now, if you've ever watched your favorite television show or a movie, and you watch it the first time, sometimes you miss when they introduce a detail or a character that later plays a much larger role. Sometimes, you, you know, the first time you're watching it, you know, then this, all of a sudden, this character's on the scene, and you're like, did we meet them before? Did they 
tell us about him or there's a detail that you missed. And so if you're not paying attention as you're reading Acts chapter 7 or Acts chapter 8 or even the beginning parts of Acts chapter 9, you might miss the fact that Paul is a huge figure in the New Testament and in, the, in the, really the start of our faith. But he's not really called Paul early on. The first time that we meet him, he's a guy named Saul. So in Acts chapter 7, and I'm going to read a bunch of text here. Let me kind of give you the verses if you're taking notes, because I know a bunch of people keep notes on the back of their worship guide. Acts 7, 58, Acts 8, 1, and 3, 9, chapter 9, 1, and 2. That's all of what we're going to read right here. We're going to mash a bunch of text together and read this together just so that we don't have to start and stop. I'm going to read it all together. I'll try to tell you where I'm skipping. And on the screen, it should have a dot, 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 so that we're jumping to another part of the text. This is what it says beginning in Acts 7:58. Then they, some religious people of that day, cast him, Stephen, who was an apostle, out of the city and stoned him. They literally were trying to kill him by throwing rocks at him. And the witnesses of what was happening laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Skip ahead to chapter 8 verse 1. And Saul approved of his Stephen's execution. Moving to verse 3. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Jump to chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus, that place where the Jews of that day would meet together, so that if he found any belonging to the way, we'll come back to that in a second, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, I just gave you a bunch of stuff. We were in Acts 7, 58, Acts 8, 1, 8, 3, 9, 1, and 2. But let me just tell you what was happening. Saul was a bad joker. Here's what Saul was doing. He was wreaking havoc on the early followers of Jesus Christ. And where you read that phrase in the last verse that we read, the way, followers of the way, that is a reference only found in the book of Acts, but found in other historical literature of that day, that referenced this new movement that we call now Christianity. The way was how they described what we describe Christianity. Followers of the way. They're followers of the way of Jesus Christ. Followers of those who believed in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the teachings that he did, the things that he did while he was on earth, and then that he resurrected from the dead, ascended back to the Father. The people that believed those things and were teaching those things were called followers of the way. And Saul was going after those kind of people. He stood there as Stephen was stoned to death. He approved of the execution of Stephen there. He was ravaging, going home to home and pulling people out of their homes to take them, to put them in prison, or to have them killed. He had written a letter to the high priest so that he could go into the synagogues of Damascus And that's where we're going to find him in a minute, on his way to Damascus. But he's written a letter giving him permission that if when he gets to the synagogues of Damascus, if he finds anybody, any of the Jewish people who are meeting in the synagogues or who are around the synagogues, who used to be the the God-fearing, Jehovah-fearing Jews, but are now believing that Jesus is the Son of God and he is actually the way to God, that he would have the right, Saul, to deal with them to bring them to prison or to approve of their killing, to take them back to Jerusalem so they could stand trial for what was happening. That's kind of scary to me. I mean, it's easy for us to read these passages with zero emotion. But I want you to put yourself in that situation and imagine that you are one of those who would be meeting in the synagogues. 
Imagine that you were one of those who would just be sitting in your homes as you've begun to follow the way of Jesus Christ. And you now have heard that there's a guy who's coming after you. There's a guy who's coming to take you out of your home to separate families. It says right here that he's willing to do that to men or women. In that day, even though women held a low place in society, it was, it was commonly understood that we wouldn't just go and take and kill women unless they had disobeyed the law. But what he's saying here is, I'm not going to be exclusive to this. I'm going to say anybody that's doing anything against the way of the Jewish tradition, we're going to deal with them, men or women, anybody that's belonging to the way. And then this is what we read. So you've got all that context. He's on his way to Damascus, and that's why this is called the Damascus Road Experience, if you've ever heard that referenced. We read what happens then to this guy named Saul in Acts chapter 9. Now, this is a little more famous. If you were watching this as a movie, this might be where you are introduced or where you realize that you're introduced to a guy that would later play this larger role. This is what we read in Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 3, and we're just going to read straight through for five verses. Now, as he went on his way to Damascus, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand, and they brought him into Damascus. Now, I don't want to overstate this here, and I want to be careful not to sensationalize this, but just the story that I just set up, the guy that I just described, this guy who was ravaging followers of the way, going in and pulling people out of their homes, going and pulling people out of their places of worship to deal with them because he had heard of what they were following. He now has this spiritual experience kind of meeting with the voice at least and the image of Jesus on this Damascus road. And he is converted. He responds to that voice to say, who are you, Lord? And depending on the way you translate that, at least at the very minimum, it is an acknowledgement of authority. Who are you, Lord? Who are you that's calling to me? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then he says, listen, I've got a plan for you, and I want you to go into the city. And Saul couldn't see. The the blinding eyes, much like this light that I'm looking in right now, blinded him. And he says, go into the city and wait there until I tell you what you're supposed to do. This was a guy that no one would have envisioned having this kind of encounter with God And being able to be converted. Let me put it in a modern day context. Imagine, if you will, that you heard the story of the head of ISIS having an experience with God, being converted, and beginning to evangelize the entire Middle East for the way of Jesus Christ. Imagine that a couple years back you had heard that Osama bin Laden had found the errors of his ways, received the saving grace of Jesus Christ, turned from his wicked ways and begun to tell people about the good news of who Jesus Christ was. That is the modern day equivalent of what we're reading. Someone who is persecuting, going after, breeding fear in the hearts of those who were following after Jesus Christ. That's the story that we read. And Paul goes and he has this encounter And then the story changes. I mean, just like that, the story changes. 
Then we get to Acts 13, verse 9, and this is what it says. But Paul, this is Luke writing, but Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. And there's no reason for us to continue there. I just wanted to show you that Saul, who could also be called Paul. And yes, there is definitely the idea here that his Hebrew name and this, maybe this Roman name that he would have could, could be a part of what we're dealing with here. But I just want you to see that like, he just had this experience with God, and it almost doesn't matter what he had done in his past. All of a sudden, Saul is not really referenced much anymore. There are very few references to this guy Saul anymore beyond Acts chapter 9. There are a couple. Most of them are when Paul himself or others are writing about him prior to his conversion. When they're referencing the things that he was doing prior to Acts chapter 9, they usually reference Saul. Paul usually said, I, Saul, was persecuting. Or the Lord called out and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? But from about this point on, all we're left with is a guy named Paul. His name has been changed. And then, and I just referenced it a little bit, but in Acts 22, Paul shows up and he's kind of on trial. He's, he's declaring the things that he's been doing and there's some religious leaders and there's some even Romans that are kind of challenging him on what he was doing. And he tells the story of who he was and what happened. This is what it says in Acts 22, verses 3, 4, and 5. I am a Jew born in Tarsus. That's why you might hear him called Saul of Tarsus in Sicilia, and brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way, those followers, to the death, binding and delivering them to prison, both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear, bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. He's telling his story, but he's also telling us who he was prior to his conversion. He was a bad dude, and yet God saw it fit to change his life, to change his trajectory, to change his purpose. And he goes on to write over two-thirds of the New Testament. He goes on about three missionary journeys that are categorized. He goes on to tell of the incredible good news of Jesus. Everywhere he goes, he goes into the synagogues, he goes into the city centers, and he debates with great theologians and philosophers about the things that were taking place and about who Jesus was. And he is able to converse with, him, with them based on what he said here about all the things that they thought to be the truth. He says, I was zealous for God even in those days. He thought even in the things that he was doing that you and I would say were bad things, he was persecuting, he was stoning, he was executing Stephen, he was going into these houses, pulling people out, going in the synagogues, pulling people out. He was saying, even when I was doing that, I thought I was pleasing God. It was about this religious system that I thought I was right and it was my job to persecute and even execute those who were not following what I understood. And today, he's one of the most influential people of our Christian faith. He has so much influence because of his writings in the New Testament, so much of what we do. But here's the problem. And here's the problem that you and I would have, even today, when we have any kind of encounter with God. Saul, on the Damascus Road, had an experience with God he could no longer see. He's told to go into the city and wait. He goes into the city and waits, and the guy's going to show up in a minute and, and kind of proclaim what God has said to him, and then scales or things like scales fall off his eyes, and he begins to see, and then he begins to go on his way doing ministry. 
I mean, that's about how fast it happens. And yet, all these other people still remember what they heard about this bad dude named Saul. Look at this. Acts chapter 9, verses 13 and 14. But Ananias answered, and this is God saying to Ananias, go and say to Saul, say to Paul what I'm about to tell you and tell him that I've got a work for him to do. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man and how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. You know what Ananias is saying? God, could you pick somebody else to go and talk to Saul? I would prefer not to do it because I've heard how bad and how evil he is. Verse 20 and 21, after Ananias goes and does that, he goes and begins to kind of minister. He goes and kind of hangs out with those that are there in that town. It says this, and, and Paul, he immediately proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, listen to this, this is his reputation. Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priest? His reputation has preceded him. They know that this is the same guy who was supposed to show up in Damascus and take all the people that were following the way to prison at the very least. And now he's walking into the synagogues and declaring that Jesus is the Son of God and that they too should be followers of the way like him. You can see how they would be suspicious. You can see how they would be like, no, 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 we're not going to fall for that. If we agree with you, then you're going to trick us, and then you're going to take us to jail, right? I mean, because I can see them going, yeah, I believe that too. But if I say to Saul, yes, that sounds good to me. I received this good news. I, I believe what you believe. Then they could say, oh, wait, Saul's just trying to trick us, and so now he's going to take us to prison. His reputation had preceded him. Now look at this in verse 26, because he goes and starts hanging out with the disciples. You know those great fearless God followers, Jesus followers, who saw these incredible miracles, who, men of great faith, right? This is what happens when he starts hanging out with the disciples. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to, jo he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. They were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. The Bible doesn't give us the exact conversations that were taking place between those disciples and this new follower of Jesus, Paul. But I've been in settings, and you have too, where you can imagine what that conversation would look like, where they're kind of interrogating him and trying to determine, okay, tell me about the Damascus Road again. What did you see when the bright light shined in your eyes? What did you hear? Because, like, we actually walked with Jesus. Like, what did his voice sound like? Was it kind of deep? Or did he kind of talk a little bit high? Like, did he have a little bit of a southern accent? Did he say y'all a lot? Because that's the guy we followed. Which guy was talking to you? You can see them interrogating him, right? And then when he leaves the room to, like, go to the restroom or to, like, get some bread or, like, to wash his feet off because they're dirty from, you know, the sandals he was wearing in the dirt, he would walk out of the room, and, they, and one of the guys would probably look over and go, I don't believe him. I think he's a liar. And the other guy would be like, no, that sounds like what Jesus said to me. Don't you remember when we were fishermen? Don't you remember when we were tax collectors? We were good for nothing. I mean, I remember when Jesus called me. It sounds exactly like that experience to me. Do you remember? It's only been about three, three and a half years ago. Don't you remember what that felt like? Don't you remember the first time you went back home when you had gone out to go fishing and then you just disappeared and they heard you'd followed this guy in a robe? 
And then you hang out with that guy for a couple weeks, and then you come back home, and we're circling back through town. Don't you remember what your aunt said to you about how crazy you were? Don't you remember the looks that you got from your neighbors when they saw you walk back into town, and you told them that you were going to be fishers of men or whatever? Don't you remember that? You remember how they looked at you? I kind of believe this guy. He seems to have had a similar experience to what I had about three and a half years ago. But the disciples were afraid. And they didn't believe that he was actually a disciple. And here's the thing that I think is important for all of us to remember. This is important for me to remember. I think it's important for you to remember. You may want to write this down because this is probably transformational for some of us in the room who are people pleasers and shaped so much by what other people think. Don't let what someone else thinks about you make you think that that's what God thinks about you. Don't let what someone else thinks about you determine what you think God thinks about you. Because there's a bunch of people in this world who are going to remember what you used to be. There's a lot of people that grew up in your neighborhood. There's a bunch of people in your family, and they remember what you were. They remember what you used to be. They remember the way you used to talk. They remember the things you used to do. They remember the things that you did with them and got them in trouble. And they're a little less forgiving than God. They don't have that same amount of amazing grace that comes in like a flood. It just sprinkles out a little bit, and it can be drawn back pretty quickly. Don't let what someone else thinks about you make you think that's what God thinks about you. But here's, here's something really interesting to me. As if this wasn't all interesting, and you, if you're bored out of your mind, that's okay, because I'm having a ball dealing with this text, okay? <laughs> Acts chapter 9, verse 7 and 8 which we've already read, we read right over it. This is one of those details as the story teller today that I just kind of left out. I just read it and glazed right over it like it wasn't important. But it's so important. Acts chapter 9, verse 7 and 8 says this. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. Who were those that were traveling with him? Where was he coming from and where was he going to? He was going to Damascus to persecute the followers of the way. So those that were following along with him were going to persecute the way. They were fellow religious zealots who were going to attack those that were following after Jesus. And then all of a sudden, Saul falls on the ground. And he's talking to this voice or this sound that they can hear, but they can't see. I mean, again, this plays out so weird in my head. I can see these guys. Saul's laying on the ground, looking up into the sun, talking to the voice that they're looking around going, who is saying that? Go check over there behind that cactus. Is there a guy kind of throwing his voice this way? There's a camel over there. Is he talking? That would be weird, but maybe that's how. Am I losing my mind? These guys are standing there, and it says that they heard the voice but saw nothing. And, and here's, what, here's what I know because it's been my experience. Not everybody's going to have the same experience with God that you're going to have. I mean, you could be with other people and have a totally different experience with God than they have. Because remember, these were religious people who thought they were doing what God wanted them to do, and when the voice of Jesus called out to Saul, they heard it, did not respond, 
and couldn't see him. Here's the reality. You can sit in this room on a Sunday morning. And this band can stand up and lead us in songs where we declare that this is amazing grace. We're declaring Christ be everything. God, you will forever reign. Your grace comes in like a flood. And it could be that one Sunday you are sitting there with tears streaming down your cheeks. With your hands lifted to the sky, which for some of us may even seem a little different, but it's just us surrendering our hearts to God, worshiping God and saying, God, I believe the words that I'm singing. I believe the words that I see on that screen. And you could be just, I mean, like in the moment and you look next to you and the guy standing next to you is playing two dots on his iPhone. The girl next to you is checking Facebook. You could look and there's somebody sitting beside you and they're just sitting there staring at the stage. That even doesn't imply that they're not connecting to God, but you don't see that same response, that same experience maybe. There may be other Sundays where you gather in this room and you see other people with their hands lifted and tears streaming down their face. You see them singing with all of their heart, making a joyful noise, not a good noise, but a joyful noise to God. And you look around and you wish that they would make a little quieter joyful noise maybe. And you're not having the same experience. You're just as dry as they come today. You don't want to sing? When you sing, it doesn't mean anything. It's just words you're reciting. They're just people that are having different experiences with God. I mean, we encounter this guy named Saul on the Damascus Road, and there's a bunch of people with him, and yet he's the only one that has that same experience. And then, based on what he heard, he says, hey, we're supposed to go into the city. They heard that. We're supposed to go in the city, and I'm just supposed to wait there. And so what we read, and we didn't read it just now, but we read it the first time we read it this morning. It says that he goes... And he says, so they led him by the hand and they brought him into Damascus. And then we don't read about them anymore. What we can infer from this is that they just went to Damascus and dropped him off and thought he had lost his mind. He had gone crazy. And here's the thing. And I'm as guilty of this as anybody in the world. I think sometimes we're afraid to experience God fully because we don't want people to think we've lost our mind. I think we're afraid of what people will think about us when we fully try to experience God. Like when, when we just hear the voice of God and we feel in our heart and we feel in our life, I'm supposed to respond to you, God. But we're afraid to open our mouth because we don't know if anybody else hears that voice. And we're afraid to lift our hands because we don't know if anybody else will look and go, but yeah, didn't that guy used to be that guy? Like, how does she have the audacity to sing and worship? Because I remember what she used to do. I was there when she used to do it. Like, how dare she come in here and act like she's a follower of the way? Because I remember she used to make fun of people that were followers of the way. I remember when we were together and they used to make fun of those people. I think sometimes we're afraid to fully experience God because of what people may think about us. 
And I don't want to infer too much here, and I'm always so careful, but I, I love stories, and I love narrative. And so sometimes I just kind of take it, and it plays out like a movie in my head. And so I don't know how it happened, but it, I kind of feel like maybe Paul had heard the voice of God, and he's walking to Damascus, being led by the hand with these guys that he was actually leading just a moment before. I can feel like in his head he's playing over all the things in his life up to that point where he was so sure he was right. And now he realizes in light of God's goodness towards him that he was so, so wrong. So they just drop him off in Damascus and leave him. And God speaks to Ananias and he's supposed to come, but he doesn't want to come because he knows who Saul has been. And he goes into the synagogues and he begins to declare that Jesus is the son of God, but everybody remembers who he was. And so he goes to Jerusalem and he goes to hang out with the disciples and they begin to interrogate him to make sure that he's actually one of the real disciples. When did it become our job to determine what God had done in somebody else's life? Like when... When did God charge me to look at you and say, yeah, you know what you think you experienced with God? It wasn't quite good enough. And you don't quite worship the right way. So I'm going to teach you the right way. There's a whole difference in mentoring and judging. There's a difference in me modeling for you and making you feel bad. When did that become my job? I'll give you the cheat sheet. It didn't. (laughs) And it didn't become your job either. I don't know that he felt this way because what we really get from the rest of the New Testament is that Saul becoming Paul, he's a pretty confident guy. So I don't know that he struggled with some of the insecurities that you and I might have struggled with in that moment, but I can see how he's led by the hand and he's dropped off and Ananias doesn't want to come and then the people in the synagogues don't believe him and then the disciples don't believe him. I can see where he feels kind of alone. And he probably feels kind of alone because of that same mentality that you and I sometimes possess And so here's the question that I would ask you that I've asked of myself this week as I've been preparing for today. Do I, do you allow God the same freedom to change others that we pray he does in us? Do I allow God to change people? Or do I question that they can actually be changed for the good? Like the things that I want God to do, because in my head, I know not just my past and not just my present, but I see my future and I see my potential and I pray that God can do good things in me. And so when God comes and encounters me and I experience him and I believe I'm making changes for the good and I'm kind of pushing towards the future, like I'm believing that this is real. Whether I've had a thousand tries at this or one try at this, I'm believing that this time it's going to make. And I wonder sometimes if I don't stand in judgment towards others, and I don't allow God the same freedom to try to change them that I pray he does in me. And so as I prepared this week, here's what I've challenged myself on. I want to get out of God's way. I want to get out of God's way, and I want him to know, not that he needs it, but that he's got my permission and my support to change everybody that he needs to change and he needs to start with me. And as he's changing me and as he's changing others, I'm going to be the most supportive person in their life about what God's doing. 
Like I'm going to change my phrases. I'm going to change the terms that I use. I'm going to change the words that I choose to use. And I'm not going to be like making them doubt that it was real this time. I'm not going to be challenging them to say, well, didn't you pray that prayer before? I mean, I've seen you go to the altar before. Didn't you, you know, we've done this thing a little bit before. Didn't you? I'm not going to do that. I'm going to celebrate what God's doing in their life. I'm going to become the biggest supporter that they have because I want supporters in my life and I know that God's still changing me and God's still working in me because I don't know if I know how God's going to use people. I don't know how God may use me. Here's what I know, looking at the story of Saul becoming Paul, he didn't actually have to leave everything that he used to be behind. God actually used who he was to make him into who, hello, to make him into who he needed to be. They've been bobbling all day. You guys have watched it. I've been watching you. I've hit it like three times. Just hang with me. But here's the thing. If you read the story of Paul throughout the remaining part of the New Testament, like he constantly references the fact that he was trained for this. He just didn't know he was being trained for it. Like he grew up and he was in the synagogues and he was learning and he was being taught all of the ways of the law. And now he's able to clearly articulate to those who were just like he was what God might want to do in them. What if who you were was what God wanted you to use to speak to someone who's still that way? That's what Paul said. He said, listen, when he goes in to argue in the synagogues, he doesn't come in and say, you are completely wrong. He comes in and says, I used to think the same thing. He says, I was taught the same way. I was raised the same way. I believed the same things. I did these unimaginable things that you probably never even done. And so let me just tell you what happened in my life. Jesus showed up and everything was different. We talk about, I'm going to kick this stuff out of the way. We talk about spiritual gifts, and we talk about personal passions, and we talk about the things that God may use in you. What if those things are all connected? I'll give you a cheat sheet. They are all connected. The things that you're passionate about, the things that you're naturally good at, God takes and breathes life into those things to serve his purposes. Because the Bible tells us that he knit you together in your mother's womb. He created you. He made you. He made me. Like, I know a lot of really good people doing a lot of really good things with the same gifts needed to do things in ministry. They've just never surrendered their heart to God. And the moment that they do, I think God will take those same passions and those same giftings, and he will transfer that exact same thing into serving his purposes for the kingdom of God. So here's the two kind of final thoughts today for everybody in the room. I think it hits everybody in the room in some way. Do you lack a relationship with Jesus Christ? Maybe you've even got a good dose of religion. So did Saul. But do you lack that really intimate experience with God where you are in relationship with him. It's almost so cliche. I feel cheesy saying it, but it's not about religion. It's about relationship, right? That's what we believe. When I pray that it's not about do's and don'ts and rights and wrongs, that's not to give us free reign to do everything we want to do. It's saying it's not about a checklist that makes us good enough. 
It's about engaging in relationship with the one who said, I already did what was enough. Now come and follow me. Do you lack that relationship today? We want to pray for you. We want to allow you the opportunity to respond to this incredible free gift of salvation that God extends to you. Maybe for those of us in the room that we have a relationship with Jesus, maybe we need to evaluate if we're okay to get out of God's way to change some folks. If we need to check our heart and check our motives to actually be supporters of the work of God and other people, and we know their reputation, and we know their past, and we know what they've done, but we're okay saying, God, maybe you're going to use that for your purpose, and I'm just going to support the work of God in their life. So I want you to bow your head and close your eyes as we pray today, and just close this moment with these two prayer points. With nobody looking around, nobody's looking at you, nobody's focusing on you and who you are. If you would say to me today, Jeremy, I do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not that I don't know some of the truth of the Bible. It's not that I don't know who God is. It's not that I don't even have a little good dose of religion. I know a lot of the do's and don'ts. I've attended church a good bit, or maybe I have not. But I do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ where I'm talking to him, hearing from him, striving to be in relationship with him and live lives that honor and please. If I, if I know that's me, I just want you to lift your hand and put it right back down. Anybody else? We're going to pray for you in just a moment. And all we're asking you to pray is, God, I, I need to have relationship with you through your son, Jesus Christ. I need to acknowledge that I'm a sinner. No matter the good or bad that I've done, I'm a sinner in need of you as the savior of my life. And I want you to guide and direct me in ways that allow us to have an ongoing relationship. It's not a one-time prayer. It's now a life together. Now, for those of us in this room that maybe that's not the prayer we need to pray or want to pray today, maybe we would say, I I just need to get out of God's way. I need to allow God the freedom to change the people that I know. And I need to be their biggest supporters. I need to quit focusing on who they used to be and who they were and what they did, the good and the bad, and I need to focus on what God may be doing in their future. And I want God to help me with that. I want him to just prune my heart of any spirit of judgmentalism, any spirit where I think I'm the one that's supposed to help them decide how to follow Jesus. I want to model that for them, but I want to do it in ways that are constructive and not critical. If that's you, I want you to lift your hand. You can put them right back down. There's a bunch of us a bunch of us. My hand's up. I don't want to do that. I don't want to feel that way. I don't want to make other people feel that way. And I want us to pray together now for these two things. God, I pray now for every person in the room that lifted their hand, more importantly, acknowledge with their heart that they need you as the Lord and Savior of their life. They need you, God, to just accept them or to help them accept you into relationship. They're acknowledging now that they are a sinner. It doesn't matter how bad or how good they think they've been up to this point, God. They are acknowledging that they need a relationship with you. They want to get rid of religion, and they want to get rid of all the other things, and just, God, focus on you and who you are, sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ. And so, God, today I pray that you would help them just to live in that, to move forward beyond this moment, beyond just one simple prayer, and live a life that acknowledges you. I pray, God, now for the hands that were lifted to say, I want to get out of God's way. I want to be supportive of the work of God and others. I do not want to be someone that is critical and second guesses that God is even capable of creating that change in their lives because I know what he did in me. So I want to get out of the way and allow God to do the work that God wants to do. 
God, help us to do that. Help us to be men and women that follow after you, that love you, and that allow you to change the lives of other people today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.